Welcome to Head to Toe, stories from the history and future of healthcare. Hello and welcome. I am your podcast host, Marie McMillan. I am a nurse, a writer, and you can find all of my creative stuff at mariemcmillan.com. Listeners, again, welcome. You are privileged, as I was and am privileged, to hear on today's Career Profiles episode, Dr. Dan Magjosh, or Dr. Majors, or simply Dr. Dan, an experienced emergency room physician with a wise and tremendously human take on treating people in the ER. For today's unique spin on career profiles, Dr. Dan gives us his top five survival tips for thriving in emergency medicine. Okay, get your pencils out, take notes, get ready. This guy has awesome things to say. That's business, Dr. Majors. That's business time. Yep. Well, uh, why don't you tell us and the listeners just a little bit about yourself, what you do in your personal history in healthcare? Sure. Yeah. So... Um, I've been an emergency room uh, physician for almost 20 years now, and uh, I practice at a local uh, community hospital in Chicago's uh, South Side, um, and that's pretty much my career. Um, so when I first talked to you, um, you had mentioned um, your podcast and Head to Toe Nation, and I just thought it might be an interesting spin to talk about my career as an ER doctor and uh, some of the survival tips, quote unquote, that I've used throughout the years to uh, help me through my shifts. I also have a reimbursement website for emergency medicine called chartoptima.com. And it's basically a website to teach uh, emergency room physicians how to document better so that they can reimburse better. And that's my other passion, but um uh, what I really was interested in is talking about the fun stuff and um, uh, little tips that I've used uh, throughout the years to survive in emergency medicine. Awesome. Five tricks of the trade to surviving emergency yep. medicine. All right, I got my pencil, got my notes, everybody else out there. Let's, let's learn from Dr. Dan. Okay, let's do this. Um, so these are my top five survival tips for thriving in emergency medicine. So tip or rule number one is... When the ER is busy, we should be ordering more tests, not less. So the thought process along this is that when a patient comes to the emergency room, I've got one shot to get their diagnosis and treatment right. And, you know, when I was first starting in the emergency room as an intern my first year, one of my teaching attendings told me, you know, Dan, if you went into emergency medicine to save money, you picked the wrong profession. And he said that, and I was completely shocked. And then, you know, soon thereafter, I realized he was right. And what he meant by that is that it's not that we shouldn't be good stewards of our resources or try not to improve efficiencies with our hospital partners. Um, But he was trying to drive home the point that we should be vigilant when caring for our patients. Um, Let me provide an example. Uh, I was working a shift. Uh, several years ago, and I'm seeing this 30-something-year-old lady, and uh, she looks pretty fit-appearing. She's got her workout outfit on. She's got new gym shoes. She's looking hip, and uh, she's really in no acute distress. And she just comes in with a complaint of a little bit of shortness of breath when she goes up and down stairs over the past week. And she had mentioned that this was a little bit out of the ordinary for her. And so I'm ordering the ER workup thinking, 
you know, man, I'm really ordering a lot of unnecessary tests here. You know, her oxygen saturation, her EKG are normal. Her chest x-ray looks good. And all the tests come back normal except for her D-dimer. And that's a screening test we use to evaluate for blood clots. So I order a CT angiogram of the chest, and the radiology call, the radiologist calls me back with this report of this patient having multiple blood clots in the lungs, uh, known as pulmonary embolism. And the radiologist, really, you can hear his voice. He just, he can't believe it. And really, almost either can I. Um, you know, and blood clots in the lungs is something that will definitely kill you. So, you know, without a doubt, you know, my general rule is to order the test. And I've seen it uh, time and time again save people's lives. And um, so I think it's just something to, uh, that's important that we keep in mind as we enter our ships. And uh, the whole thing with the ordering tests, again, it's, uh, um, it's not that we don't want to be good stewards of resources, because we totally do, right? We don't want to be ordering a CT of the lumbar spine on every 25-year-old that comes in with back pain, right? Because that's inefficient and crazy, and it's bad for the patient. But um, if things are busy, uh, I, I tell this to my advanced uh, uh practice providers or whatever the uh, the in vogue languages for uh, mid-levels these days is, is that when you guys work with me and the ER is busy, I want you guys ordering more, not less, because when we're, when we're busy, we're flying through patients and I don't want to miss anything. Right. Yeah. It reminds yeah. me of a similar phrase I heard in nursing school was like, no actual patient reads the textbook. Like no one shows up as like the diagram in your textbook. <laughs> right. Right, exactly. Um, there's this guy, uh, I think it was like William Osler, or some of these just hallmark guys of medicine in the 1800s who said, you know, you never want to give the guy, your patient, more than one diagnosis. Well, you know, that doctor, he never practiced at Payless Hospital <laughs> <laughs> because my, my patients have multiple diagnoses. You know, they've, right. they've got a lot going on with them. Okay, more tests, not less. Number two. Um, so rule number two for surviving emergency medicine, it's don't be afraid to invoke the services of your hospital grounds and maintenance crew. So the guy with the 15 different kinds of wrenches and pliers strapped around his belt is often the guy who saves the day. And I've seen a lot of interesting foreign bodies embedded in people over the years. <laughs> Not all of these have been easy to remove with your standard, you know, suture kit. So... We had a great case from years ago. Uh, I was practicing at one of our inner city hospitals as a resident, and this guy comes in with an industrial-sized nail embedded within his femur, which is um, your thigh bone. And we tried every kind of medical instrument we could find. Um, we're in the trauma bay. The trauma fellow even calls the OR to bring in some specialized orthopedic tools, and all attempts were un unsuccessful. So how did we ultimately help this patient? It was the maintenance guy who comes down and he saves the day. So we call the maintenance guy down. He comes down with walkie-talkie in hand, and he's literally got like 15 different instruments strapped across his belt. Wait, 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 so wait, the, wait, wait. This is the hospital maintenance guy, the guy who, who comes into patient rooms and fixes the doors and windows and toilets and stuff? Oh, no, this guy's fixing elevators. So, and this is legit. I mean, he's got... 
he's got grease on his hands. Oh his my cheeks. gosh! Just, this guy has been working. Yeah, just totally awesome. It was it was right out of a, a TV show. <laughs> so the physician the physician team borrows a pair of his pliers. You know, we sedate the patient with IV propofol, and we and grab hold of this very large nail, and with the right equipment, a little pull, and one, two, three, it's out, no sweat. So, and then shortly thereafter, the patient's awake, alert, feeling well. He's walking on it. He actually gets discharged from the trauma bay, and you know that was years ago, but totally awesome. And so, I just will never forget that case. So the the survival tip there is, you know, when in doubt, don't be afraid to call the maintenance guy. Trust the tool belt. Okay. So rule number three for surviving emergency medicine. This goes, no matter how busy you are, try to maintain eye level with the patient and let them have the first 30 seconds. So what I mean by this is I come into the room. If the patient's kneeling, I'm kneeling. If they're standing, I'm standing. And so... What happens is sometimes patients have been waiting to be seen three or four hours in a crazy busy ER day. And so what I typically do is I enter the room with a smile, I shake their hand, I shake everybody else's hand, I apologize for the wait, and I give the patient that first 30 seconds to talk. So, And what this does is it just allows the patient to gain some control over their situation, and they feel valued as they should be. And, you know, after 30 seconds, then I can go for the targeted questions I need to help them. I perform my exam, and everybody wins. And I just love that. I actually picked that up from a Patient Satisfaction Academy years ago, and it it definitely works, and it just makes for a happy customer. I like what you said, though, that they have some measure of control over their situation, like their input is valued after they've been waiting for a long time. That's a really valid point. Right. They've been waiting for three or four hours and, and, you know, they just are frustrated and it's just palpable sometimes. So you just want to throw them in the bone and just, it just, it just brings back the human element to the, the whole encounter. And then, then, like I said, after 30 seconds, then I can just hijack it and, and take it any way I want and, and actually be able to help them. That must be hard though, at times, you know, when you're, you're slammed or you've just gone through some, you know, some, trauma or you've, you've coded people, you've had to give people bad news, and then you go into the room with the abdominal pain complaints and like that person's been waiting for five hours, but they have no idea what you've gone through in the last 45 minutes. So to turn around and like reset and get on their eye level, that, that must, you have to dig deep sometimes for that. For sure. That's, that's actually what you just said, Marie, just resonates with every ER doctor because we do that kind of thing every day. So I just I just code somebody and then have to talk to the wife and the two daughters who are 11 and 12 years old and well after that kind of a case maybe I I need a couple minutes yeah. but um but but uh 5 minutes later I am going into somebody else's room and they have no clue what just transpired mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you're right so I give them the first 30 seconds depending on my day you might not make it up to 35 Right. But you get the first 30. Get on eye level with the patient. Make, you know, get on their level where they're existing. I like that. Right. Get on eye level, make eye contact, shake everybody's hand in the room, and smile. And, you know, if you do those few basic things, 
within that first 20 seconds, you are going to connect. And it's really a cool thing to, to see just unfold in front of your eyes. Okay, so let's move on. Rule number four for surviving emergency medicine. Hello, 911. I can't sleep. I need a Lux pillow. Hey, listeners. I wanted to share a quick message from our podcast sponsor, Lux Pillow. If you're not getting good quality sleep, you are not alone. One in three Americans suffer from poor sleep, according to the CDC. So go check out Lux Pillow's products made with 3C technology, structure and support, and one luxury pillow. Lux Pillow's goals to help you fall asleep fast, feel better, and achieve more. Quit tossing and turning and get your best sleep ever with a Lux Pillow at LuxPillow.com. Stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear the special coupon code for a 10% off your purchase. And now, back to the show. Okay, so let's move on. Rule number four for surviving emergency medicine. This is probably one of my favorites. Um, it goes, when things don't seem to be adding up in a patient's past medical history, um, invoke the Louisiana doctor rule. So this is about as politically incorrect as I think I'll get. And it's nothing against my friends who reside in Louisiana. It's just a figure of speech, but it's one that just I haven't been able to pull out of my mind. Um, so the rule is basically to assume that everybody else involved in that patient's care previously has no clue what they're doing. And is this universally true? Of course not. But when I see a case that just doesn't seem to add up, it frees me from being biased against what other people might have missed. So for example, so I have this case of this 66-year-old lady, she has a six-week history of fatigue and intermittent confusion, and she's been seen by multiple different doctors. She's been admitted to the hospital twice. She's had labs and imaging done, including an MRI of the brain that were all essentially unremarkable. And the working diagnosis is that she has been developing some dementia. So the family is just at their wit's end with this. And she's up at night. Sometimes she's incontinent of urine. And so they drive two and a half hours up to our emergency room. And so I end up seeing this lady in the express care portion of our emergency room. And her exam is essentially negative. Labs and CT scan, all negative. And the patient did have a history of initial headaches and some nausea, though this was weeks ago. And so I figure, oh, what the heck? I'll perform a lumbar puncture. And the CSF fluid, which is the cerebral spinal fluid, comes back positive for white cells. And so this patient had encephalitis, which is inflammation and infection of the brain, not dementia. And, wow. you know, the family was so grateful for the diagnosis. And she recovered, actually, steadily over the next several weeks. So, cool case. And, you know, what I've learned is, you know, I'm not the smartest doctor, but I have a good foundational knowledge. I've got a lot of years of hard work, and I've got about 20 years of clinical experience. And sometimes you have to just give the patient the benefit of the doubt, and you have to invoke the Louisiana doctor rule. Assume the position of square one, kind of. Exactly. Just wipe the chalkboard clean and just start, start building uh, and see what you find. And I think it's so important because, like I said, you just come into this case with uh, a bias, but if things don't 
makes sense, that's when you got to just take a step back and start from square one. And um, I love it. I mean, I think that's just how you make, that's how you find things that other people have missed. Okay, uh, let's move on, and I've got uh, rule number five or tip number five. Rule number five, the final tip to surviving the emergency room with Dr. Majors. So rule number five is to learn in a way that works for you. So, okay, I'm going to give full disclosure here. I'm an emergency room physician, and I failed kindergarten. So my wife says, yep. (laughs) My wife says that that's the best thing that ever happened to me. So from that second year of kindergarten on, I just knew I was going to be a doctor. And, you know, the drive was there. And you know what? I I still can't skip and I can't process a word. If you were to just spell it out, I have a hard time understanding what you said. But I can walk you through any ACLS algorithm with my eyes closed. And so what I learned is in medical school, at the end of my first semester, I was trying to keep up with final exams. And truth be told, every day of the first two years of medical school is like a final exam. It's just a ton of work and it can be quite overbearing. So anyhow, I realized that that last week by going to class, I just wasn't going to make it. So what I did is I stayed in my apartment studying the class notes. I studied literally from like 7 o'clock in the morning till 10 at night. I'd eat lunch. I'd watch the uh, O.J. Simpson trial uh, back then. It was around 12 noon. I'd watch that for an hour, and then I would just go back and hit the books. And I actually did really well on my final exams. And from that point on, I never went to class again, (laughs) except for tests, chemistry labs, and that kind of thing. And I studied like crazy, but it was kind of on my own with class notes. And I was pretty much a straight-A student in medical school from from then on. And so what I learned is, is that learning is different for everyone. You know, sitting in a classroom, listening to someone read notes, that's not how I learned. And so what I had to do is I had to tailor my education to do with what worked. And so the take-home point is to figure out what works for you and then to do it. And also to reach your really high goals, you have to work hard. So that's pretty much it. So work hard, study hard, but realize that learning is different for everyone. And I think formal education, I was talking with somebody else recently on one of the episodes about how formal medical and health, you know, education is, it really hasn't changed much in like 300 years. It is really just one person kind of talking to a hundred other people. And um, I think there's a lot of revolutionary things out there to to like change that. And and we're learning that there are different learners out there. People learn in different ways. So I think that's an important point for sure. Agreed. And I'll, I'll second that motion. I think we need to to change up some of the ways that we teach our medical students and residents. Um, for example, I had an A-plus in neuroanatomy, but to tell you the different components of the spinal thalamic tract, it's beyond me. You know, I know how to read a, a CT scan of the head and call the radiologist before they've read it and said, 
say, hey, there's a bleed there. Um, tell me a little bit more about it. But that's the kind of stuff that we need to know to to help people and to function day to day in our practice. So, so I think we need to rethink about um, how we're educating and make the this education practical and impactful for physicians out there. Absolutely. So, more tests, not less tests when things are busy. Trust the tool belt. Call the maintenance guy when in doubt. Get on eye level with the patient and let them have the first 30 seconds. Louisiana doctor rule, assume the position of square one and learn in a way that works for you. That is an incredible summary, and I wish I had that in my pre-show notes. <laughs> well, I can type it out for you. <laughs> great. That was great. I'm going to use that next time. There you go. You can, you, I'll put it on a card, and you can take it with you for your, for your residence and uh, <laughs> all that. Dr. Dan's five tips for survival. That's good. So tell us a little bit about Chart Optima. Yeah, great. Thanks. I appreciate the website plug. So now that I have a captive audience, um, here's the plug for my emergency medicine website. So it's a reimbursement tool for emergency medicine physicians called chartoptima.com. My goal is to educate emergency medicine physicians how to document better so that they can reimburse better. And there's actually a human interest story in all of this. Um, Despite our advances in technology, I've seen how clinicians are literally leaving tens of millions of dollars per year on the table in unrealized reimbursement. You know, and as doctors, we put a lot of time and effort into areas involving quality patient care, continuing medical education, patient satisfaction, and medical staff relationships. In regards to our charting, physicians all too often overlook this important arena. You know, no one ever taught us in medical school or in ER residency how to chart. And so my goal is to empower physicians to optimize, not maximize through their charting. So I want to try to optimize our reimbursement, but I really don't want to end up on 2020 or Judge Judy for medical fraud. And at the end of the day, I mean, the website's just about trying to do what's right. And so what we have is a unique web-based platform. Um, Emergency medicine physicians are empowered through the content of over 35 high-yield documentation and reimbursement tutorials. And then we enhance that with a 52-week email series. And so for all of our audience members out there with ties to emergency medicine, tell your friends. It's called chartoptima.com. Check us out. Awesome. I'll be sure to include that, uh, a link to that in the show notes, guys, so check that out. Final question for you, Dr. Dan. What keeps you in emergency medicine? It's the drive to care for others. I mean, I think that's probably the politically correct answer, but it is true. I mean, we are really privileged to take care of people. And I remember thinking that, like, it was funny, like, about 10 years ago, I thought, man, that's really a privilege to take care of people. And then the very next case, I had a young guy whose presenting complaint was less than glamorous. And it was, I, I looked at the chart and I thought, man, this is really a nuisance. <laughs> and then I paused and thought, that's not what you just said 15 seconds ago in your mind. 
And I went into that room with a whole different attitude, you know, after I checked myself. And that is true. At the end of the day, that's, that's what we're there for is to care for people. Is it, is it cool? Is technology cool? Are procedures cool? Is making a living and being able to support your family and be financially stable, is, is that great too? Sure. Yeah, that it, that's just a plus it. But at the end of the day, we're there to take care of people. And so that's why I said, when, you know, when you come into the emergency room, you better have your game on because somebody is walking that emergency room looking for help. And it's, it's our job to, to do the best that we can. Well said. Dr. Dan, Dr. Majors, Dr. Magjash. You nailed it. I nailed it. Great. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I love it. I love everything you had to say. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's Career Profiles episode. Wow. I don't know about you guys, but I'm definitely taking some of these tips with me into practice. I hope you enjoyed Dr. Dan's wisdom as much as I did. Dr. Dan, aka Dr. Majors, thank you so much for all you do and your work and for being a guest on the podcast and sharing your five tips for surviving emergency medicine. To hear the extended, less edited interviews with Dr. Dan and other previous show guests, head to my Patreon page, patreon.com slash Marie McMillan. It'll be up there soon. And don't forget to check out Dr. Dan's Chart Optima, a reimbursement tool for emergency physicians. Chart smarter and optimize the return on the care you provide. Visit chartoptima.com. All these links can be found in the show notes. Please scroll down in your podcast player to click on them. Okay, you guys, I'm recording the intro outro to this episode on vacation in a room that has very loud AC, which is very near a pool and sangria. So I will wrap this up ASAP. I'm taking a break from producing new episodes in August until after Labor Day. Number one, because I need a vacation. Number two, I want to hear your ideas for new shows. So please, 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 please email me at macmillanpages at gmail.com about show topics and guest nominations and leave a voicemail on the podcast feedback line at 503-512-0185. I'd love to hear your thoughts, truly. Thank you to LuxPillow for being the sponsor of today's podcast. Visit LuxPillow.com and use the coupon code head to toe all one word, in your checkout to get 10% off. Thank you to Wesley Price for providing the music in today's podcast. Okay, that's it. I'm jumping in the pool. Until next time, take care, guys. See you after Labor Day.